Welcome to the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC Fight Night 213, Cater vs. Allen, also known as UFC Vegas 63. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com, and I apologize right away for the implied false advertising in the display image for this podcast. This is not a Shillin' and Duffy podcast. This is apparently a Duffy all by himself podcast as my usual co-host Keith is indisposed and uh, on short notice like this and for a card of this frankly low stakes, uh, I yeah, couldn't be arsed to find a replacement. So I am going to run this one solo. Uh, it will have 50% less side conversations, inappropriate humor and obscure uh, MMA history references. Uh, UFC Fight Night 213, well, of course, we just got through UFC 280, a massive pay-per-view undertaking that it's left a few more question marks that we, than we would have liked, and not all the fights lived up to the hype necessarily, but nonetheless, it was a big card with big implications for multiple divisions. And the fight night card after one of those huge pay-per-view cards always feels like a little bit of a letdown slash hangover. But even by those standards, UFC Vegas 63 is rough sledding. Uh, UFC 280 was a 12 fight card that had 15 ranked fighters on it by the SureDog rankings. Probably one or two more than that by the UFC rankings since those rankings only take their own fighters into consideration. But 15 ranked fighters in 12 fights. UFC Fight Night 213 is a nine-fight card because we had a couple fall off and have not been replaced. And out of those nine fights, there are two ranked fighters, your main event fighters, Calvin Cater and Arnold Allen. And before you jump out and say, well, of course, they have to stack the pay-per-view uh, card with uh, ranked fighters and, and top contenders so that you pay the money for it, keep in mind that the undercard of UFC 280 alone had five ranked fighters on it. So this is a substantial step down, even from the free part of last week's card. Nonetheless, there is some good stuff on here. Obviously, Cater versus, versus Allen is a fantastic main event. Uh, there are a couple of interesting prospects on the card, both hot, fresh, new prospects, fresh in from the Contender Series or wherever, as well as some prospects that have been in the UFC for a minute, but might have lost a fight or two and are looking to regain some of that uh, that new car shine. We're going to talk about all of them, and let's just go ahead and dive right into these prelims. Let's head to the men's featherweight division for a matchup between Chase Hooper and Steve Garcia. Hooper, the 23-year-old from Enumclaw, Washington, is 11-2-1 overall. He is 3-2 since joining the UFC out of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series. He is one of those aforementioned fighters who competed on the Contender Series, wasn't immediately signed, and that's probably a good thing. It allowed him to go back and get some more seasoning in regional promotions, but uh, he was signed in December of 2019. Since then, he is 3-2 with the promotion. He has alternated wins and losses throughout his UFC career. He won his last time out. It was a third round TKO 
of Felipe Diaz Colares that was at UFC Fight Night Home versus Vieira back in May. Prior to that, he had dropped a unanimous decision to Steven Peterson. He will be taking on Garcia. The 30-year-old New Mexico native is 12-5 and overall. He is 1-2 and since joining the UFC out of the third season of Dana White's Contender Series, where uh, he won and was not signed, at least in part because he missed weight for that fight. However, that fight was scheduled at 135, and in just a moment, I'll get to why that's probably not a realistic expectation in this guy's case. But uh, he signed with the UFC uh, actually over two years ago at this point, has only fought once per year since then, but he lost his debut to Luis Pena, came back with a second round TKO of Charlie Ontiveros last October, and fought most recently this June at UFC 275, where he got knocked out in just a minute and 14 seconds by the debuting Maheshate. So he will be looking to get back on track here. Hooper looking to keep things going. Hooper is heavily favored to do so. He is minus 250 as the favorite. Garcia plus 210 as the underdog. Garcia is a, well, Garcia was a pretty big lightweight, which makes it a little alarming that he is trying to drop back down to featherweight for this fight. Uh, He fought back and forth at featherweight and a little bit at lightweight, a couple times even at bantamweight on his way up you know, fought on the contender series or tried to fight on the contender series at Bantamweight. That didn't work out for him. I mean, he won his fight, but he he blew weight badly. All three of his fights in the UFC have been at 155. And even at 155, he's a big guy. He's six feet tall. He's not skinny. So it's a little bit concerning that he's trying to right the ship by dropping back down to 145. Uh, In terms of his skills, he's a very aggressive, high-volume guy. He wants to come forward. He's a high-volume striker, good power, as you would expect of, of a guy as big as he is, but super defensively porous. You know, he get he he wants to, you know, he wants to incite kind of a wild brawl, and he trusts his power, his volume, and his chin to carry him through it. Against Charlie Ontiveros, it worked. Uh, against Mahashate, it didn't. He came in wild and got plunked, and he got plunked quickly, like face planted, walk off knockout for uh, for Mahashate. It's concerning for that reason that he's dropping to 145, because his chin is not going to be helped by that additional weight cut. And if this should go past, say, the middle of the second round, his gas tank probably won't be ser- well served by that either. Uh, the good news for Garcia going against Hooper is that Hooper is very unlikely to one shot KO him. Uh, Hooper was for uh, a while there, maybe the worst striker in the UFC. Uh, He is a long lanky guy that just didn't really have the footwork or the physical strength to keep shorter, burlier fighters off of him. Always been kind of hittable. He's a little bit better of a striker now he has a little more power which i mean makes sense he was 19 when he signed with the ufc he is 23 now uh so he's growing into more of an adult body uh so he has a little bit more power he is still very hittable in his last fight his win over felipe diaz colores there were some things to uh there were some encouraging things there 
you know, he got Colares on the ground and he threw meaner ground and pound than he than he has been willing to throw in his earlier fights. And he seemed to get stronger as the fight went on. He, in his earlier fights in the UFC, seemed to fade a little bit late uh, against Colares. Even though he was winning most of the fight, uh, he started to pile it on as as the fight wore on and ended up getting a third round TKO on the ground where the earlier version of Hooper eh, might have just uh, ended up with a decision. So that's good to see that he is physically maturing and uh, getting a little more aggressive, probably a little more confident. Hooper is a guy that would have been best served if he were still on the regional scene and just coming to the contender series now, probably, you know, he'd have more fights in the last three years than he has and probably just more of a chance to develop, but he's here for better or for worse. It feels a little bit like a featherweight Mickey Gall to me. I understand why he's a minus 250 favorite over Garcia and I wouldn't feel, I mean, I don't feel super comfortable with it just because Garcia is hyper aggressive and throws everything pretty hard. I mean, he's not a massive knockout artist, but considering how hittable Hooper is, I could see Garcia just putting a ton of punishment on him early and really changing the complexion of this fight. But my pick here is that uh, Hooper survives a wild first round, finds, uh, you know, finds ways to weather the storm early, finds ways to get Garcia to the ground. He's He's become a somewhat better offensive wrestler. He's, he's gotten better at getting the fight, uh, into his wheelhouse because he is, you know, still very much a grappling specialist. So give me Hooper over Garcia here. And considering that Garcia is dropping to 145, I'm going to say that Hooper even finishes this, uh, give me Hooper by I'll say submission, but uh, TKO on the ground against a fading Garcia, uh, wouldn't surprise me too badly either. Next up at UFC Fight Night 213, we have a middleweight matchup between Joseph Holmes and Jun Young Park. Holmes, the 27-year-old Texan, is 8-2 overall. He is 1-1 since joining the UFC as a veteran of the 2021 season of Dana White's Contender Series, where he competed, he won, but was not immediately signed. He took one fight in Fury FC on one of the Dana White looking for a fight episodes, uh, was signed off of that and joined the UFC where he lost his debut back in January by decision to Jamie Pickett, came back in May at UFC Fight Night Home versus Vieira and uh, choked out Alan Amadovsky in the first round. He'll look to make it two straight against Park. The 31-year-old South Korean is 14-5 overall. He is 4-2 in the UFC since joining out of a uh, globe-hopping regional career. I mean, he came into the UFC on a, I think, seven or eight fight win streak, but his last four fights were in four different countries uh, before getting signed. Since being in the UFC, uh, as I say, uh, four and two. His losses are to Anthony Hernandez and Gregory Rodriguez. Uh, he has wins over Mark Andre Barrio, John Phillips, Tafan Chukwi, and most recently, uh, Eric Anders, whom he defeated at that home versus Vieta fight night in May. Uh, the odds here pretty wide 
Park minus 250, Holmes plus 190. Uh, Holmes is an interesting fighter. He is a super tall and lanky middleweight. He's, you know, he's 6'4, uh, big wingspan, long legs. He's got kind of the John Jones build where uh, he looks huge for the weight class, and part of it is because, you know, he, he's uh, got long limbs. He, I, you look at him and you would expect him to, you know, fight like a, a rangy striker. You expect him to fight like a, you know, I don't know, Israel Adesanya type. But he is, at least at this point in his development, very much a grappling specialist. Uh, his striking is, it's definitely a work in progress. Uh, he's very hittable right now. He's he's a willing striker. He comes forward, but he throws a lot of single strikes. Uh, his chin is often up in the air and his hands are not up. So he gets tagged a lot in his fights. Uh, he does have good kicks and he throws a lot of them. He has the kicking game of a man who is not afraid to be taken down. And as a matter of fact, kind of wishes you would. Uh, once he's on the ground, very good grappler, unconventional grappler. Uh, he excels in scrambles. Uh, he has six career submissions out of eight wins. Five of those six are rear naked chokes. And it's mostly because he is good at taking the back from almost anywhere. You know, he, he's good at sweeping off a of bottom position. He's good at taking the back, uh, you know, in transition. He is uh, he can take uh, someone's back standing and then just drag him down. And once they're down there, it's very good at uh, sinking the hooks putting on a body triangle and using those long arms to cinch up the choke. Uh, my concerns in his case, Jamie Pickett, who is a very inconsistent fighter himself and can kind of let uh, sequences or whole rounds just kind of snooze by, was able to impose that same kind of fight on Holmes. And it just makes me worry that a more seasoned fighter like Park is going to be able to do that to him and that, uh, Park is going to be able to kind of force his game on Holmes. It's hard to take much away from the Amadovsky fight. Holmes destroyed Amadovsky. He hurt him on the feet and then uh, choked him out easily. But Amadovsky, just, he wasn't UFC level. He was the worst guy in the division. Uh, you know, Holmes didn't even like sink the hooks. He just got the, the no hooks rear naked choke on, on a badly dinged up Amadovsky. Uh, I mean, if he's somewhere between the guy that thrashed Amadovsky and the guy that just kind of dropped a ho-hum decision to pick it, I think this is Park's uh, fight to win or lose. Park is a surprisingly well-rounded fighter. He's a good offensive wrestler and, uh, you know, able to grind out wins against people who want to strike against him, uh, but a surprisingly good uh, striker as well, you know, so he's kind of the, the jack of all trades, master of none, but smart enough to try to go to his strengths and his opponent's relative weaknesses. Uh, the Eric Anders fight is a little concerning because I mean, honestly, I thought Anders won the fight and looking at MMA decisions.com, uh, it looks like a big majority of people watching thought Anders won as well. Uh, Anders, I thought won the first two rounds pretty clearly before uh, Park took over late. Uh, but so, you know, that's not a great win, but his loss to Gregory Rodriguez, 
uh, he was giving as good as he got until it ended. Like, Rodriguez ended up knocking him out in the second round, but it was a wild fight for uh, as long as it lasted, and he had his opportunities to win as well. So I don't think his stock lost too much there. My guess for this fight would be that Holmes will probably try to test his luck on the feet. He does that uh, pretty much every time, and I think Park is going to be able to make him pay. Park's going to be way shorter. He's going to have a shorter reach, but Holmes thus far is a tall fighter who doesn't fight tall. You know, he stands tall, but he doesn't fight tall, and... Uh, I don't think he's going to be able to to keep Park off him. I think if this goes to the ground, it'll probably be because Park took it there. Uh, he's a good takedown artist. Holmes, again, you know, Holmes kind of wants you to take him down, but he has the defensive wrestling issues of a very tall fighter with long legs who stands tall. So I'm thinking Holmes probably uh, gets hit quite a bit on the feet i think if it goes to the ground it's going to be park's top control which has been surprisingly good against holmes trying to scramble trying to sweep uh and you know trying to either just escape entirely or get parks back and you know work his rear naked choke magic i think that's the outside chance i think what we're probably going to get is park busting up holmes on the feet and racking up time on the ground where he is in control and doing at least enough damage not to get stood back up. So give me Park by decision here and probably a pretty clear decision. Next up at UFC Vegas 63, it is the heavyweights as Andre Arlovsky and Marco Sagerio de Lima take the cage. Arlovsky, the 43-year-old Belarusian, is 34 and 20 with two no contests over the course of a long and storied career that of course uh saw him win the ufc heavyweight title on two separate occasions of course that was over a decade and a half ago uh at this point he is 23 and 14 with one no contest across two separate stints with the ufc he was out of the ufc from uh about 2008 to 2014 since coming back he is 13 and 10 in the ufc and incredible as it sounds and incredible as it feels to say for a guy who appears completely shot and whose career seems to have been over a half dozen times he is on a four fight win streak uh since getting blasted by tom aspinall last february he has wins over chase sherman carlos felipe jared vandera and jake collier the most recent of those, the Collier win, was at uh, UFC on ESPN Font versus Vera back in April. He will try to make it an improbable five straight against DeLima. The 37-year-old Brazilian is 19-8-1 overall. He is 8-6 in the UFC. He is 4-3 in the UFC at heavyweight. He had a 4-3 run at light heavyweight. He uh, decided to turn to heavyweight and immediately started weighing 265 pounds on the dot, uh, which will not surprise you at all when you see him uh, on the scales or walking into the cage. Uh, He lost his last time out. It was a unanimous decision against uh, Blagoj Ivanov, 
at UFC 274 back in May. That uh, put the brakes on a two-fight win streak for him against Maurice Green and Ben Rothwell. The odds here uh, favor Delima. He's minus 230 or so. Arlovsky plus 180 on the comeback. If if Keith were here and we were bantering back and forth, I'd probably take a few minutes to give and you know give my usual elegy for Arlovsky's career. Just because anytime we see him, you know, it, it might be the last. The guy, I mean, the guy is 43. And he's gonna be 44 in like three months. He is the last fighter on UFC roster who was in the UFC before Dana White. I mean, that's all you really need to know. Like he, he literally predates the Zufa era and yeah, he's on a four fight win streak and it is attributable to three things. One, he has made adjustments to the decline of his physical gifts, like very, very, very few fighters in the history of the sport. You know, you talk about Shogun Hua, Alistair Overeem, fighters who came back from injury or just persisted into old age and found or kept finding ways to win. He's absolutely, uh, you know, on the Mount Rushmore of those fighters. I, I never thought I'd be talking about Andre Arlovsky on a four-fight win streak at this point in his career. So, I mean, certainly he has done remarkable things to stay relevant. That's one part of it. Part two is luck. There's a little bit of luck involved here. I mean, all four of the wins on this streak are decisions. The last two of them were split decisions. And the last one against Jake Collier was a bad split decision. The third factor in Arlovsky's continued relevance is the fact that he's simply fighting the worst fighters in the division right now. This is a guy who, you know, once upon a time held the UFC heavyweight title. He was, I mean, he might not have been the best heavyweight in the world, but he was certainly in the top five, uh, even keeping in mind who was over in, in pride at the time. And he's gone from that to, I mean, Chase Sherman, Carlos Felipe, Jared Vandera, Jake Collier. Uh, Jake Collier is the only one of those that's not on the absolute bottom shelf of UFC heavyweights. And, Collier is the one that probably beat him. Will he make it uh, five in a row against uh, Delima? Man, good kickboxer. I mean, he's he's not a finesse kickboxer. He is a like brawler who throws everything super hard, but he has monstrous kicks. Like his kicks uh, are brutal to the legs, to the body has tons of punching power. He had good power at 205. That power has carried over to uh, heavyweight and then some. Like he actually has more he has better power at heavyweight than he than he did at light heavyweights. He is defensively fairly sound. I mean, he's not Israel Adesanya, he's not Alex Pereira, he's not uh, Dustin Jacoby that we're going to talk about a little later, but uh, he's pretty good at slipping punches. Uh, decent footwork. I mean, he looks, he looks like he wouldn't have uh, very fast feet, but, uh, despite the fact that he's put on just, you know, 60 pounds of mass from what he was five years ago, uh, still, still has pretty fast feet. His problem is that he might have the worst ground game in the UFC at any weight. It's just absolutely abysmal. 
In fact, now that Greg Hardy is out of the UFC, I'll go out on a limb and say that Marcos Pizal has the worst ground game in the UFC. Uh, he's easy to take down, which you wouldn't think because he's a short squat uh, heavyweight. I mean, he's only like six feet tall. Uh, he has the low center of gravity that I've referred to, uh, you know, in talking about a few fighters in recent shows. So he's easy to take down and worse. He just, for a guy that he has a black belt in jujitsu, every time he's on the ground, it's like, he's never been there before. He's just flat on the ground, shoulder blades down, doesn't do much other than just try to sit up and push his opponent off and which that, I mean, that's surprisingly successful for people like uh, Derek Lewis or Mark Hunt, but for Marco Sagerio de Lima, it simply hasn't worked. He uh, lost to Ivanov back in May of his six UFC losses. That was the first one that wasn't by submission. All of his other uh, losses had been by submission, including just some embarrassing stuff. You know, got arm triangle choked by the ghost of Stefan Struve. Uh, Alexander Romanov. Granted, Alexander Romanov is a very good heavyweight, but he, I mean, he tapped him out with just a playground bully forearm on the chin and neck. I, I think we might even have had to add something to the fight finder to to be able to record that because it was something that, that we hadn't really seen done in a long time. The lucky thing for Delima is that this version of Arlovsky doesn't go to the ground. I mean, Arlovsky hasn't gone to the ground in a long time. You may remember him flooring Tim Sylvia and then diving into his guard and inexplicably leaning back for a heel hook. You know, if you're old school enough to remember that. That was Andre Arlovsky's last submission win. And I think that was 2006. So uh, Arlovsky isn't going to test uh, Delima's ground game, probably. He's just going to try to do the Andre Arlovsky thing. Uh, shuffle in and out, faint, throw a few jabs, throw a few low kicks, uh, use some lateral movement to try to stay away from the haymakers coming his way. It's really tempting to take Arlovsky in the upset here, but Delima does a couple of things that Arlovsky, even at this point, just doesn't deal with well. Uh, Delima throws... Uh, like really hard kicks to the legs and body. And while Arlovsky's high guard and, and head movement have been pretty good at keeping his chin off the gunnery range in recent years, uh, they, you know, he's still susceptible to kicks. And I think Delima is going to score with those. Uh, and again, just no faith that this version of Arlovsky is going to even try to take advantage of the worst ground game in the UFC. So I'm going to pick Arlovsky to make it to the final uh, make it to the final horn here for a guy that was once reviled as having the most fragile chin in the sport. He's proven that not only is he pretty defensively sound in this uh, version of himself, but surprisingly, he's taken flush shots from heavyweights and been fine. I, I don't, it must be something to do with the beard. I don't get it, but give me Delima to win a slow paced shuffling kickboxing battle where uh, he tags Arlovsky with a few big punches. Arlovsky survives those, but he's taking a steady diet of kicks and uh, Delima probably wins all three rounds.
Next up at UFC Fight Night 213 is another middleweight matchup, this one featuring Phil Hawes versus Roman Delizze. Hawes, the 33-year-old uh, New Jersey native, is 12-3 overall. He is 4-1 since joining the UFC as a two-time veteran of Dana White's Contender Series. He competed on the very first season where he lost, uh, got head kicked by Anthony Hernandez, I think. No, sorry, head kicked by uh, Julian Marquez. Uh, went back for some uh, additional experience uh, in Bellator as well as a couple of regional promotions. He came back on the 2020 season of the Contender Series where he beat Kajimarat Bestaev, punching his ticket to the UFC where he has gone 4-1 uh, and one since. He won his last time out. It was a second round TKO of Deron Wynn at UFC on ESPN Cater versus Emmett back in June. That turned things back around for him after his first UFC loss, a shocking first round uh, KO at the hands of Chris Curtis last November at UFC 268. He will look to make it two in a row against Delizze. The 34-year-old Georgian by way of Las Vegas is 10-1 overall. He is also 4-1 in the UFC. He is 2-1 since dropping the middleweight. He debuted in the UFC back in 2020, relatively unheralded uh, at light heavyweight. He won two in a row, but uh, apparently that wasn't good enough for him, so he dropped from 205 to 185. He lost his first middleweight bout. That was a unanimous decision against Trevin Giles last March. Since then, he has won two straight. Uh, over Loriano Staropoli and Kyle Dawkus. The most recent of those, the Dawkus win, was a first-round knockout at the same uh, Cater versus Emmett card back in June, uh, both at UFC Austin. Odds here are fairly close, but they do slightly favor Hawes. He is minus 170, Delizze plus 140. Phil Hawes, for uh, someone who is you know four and one in the UFC. He's a strange mix of still feeling like a prospect on the rise versus feeling a little bit like a busted prospect who's, you know, trying to salvage anything and then also being 33 years old and it's kind of go time. Heading into his first appearance on the Contender Series, people were calling him the next John Jones. And part of it is that uh, he's a junior college national wrestling champ from the same Iowa Central Community College that produced Jones, that produced uh, Colby Cummington, Cain Velasquez. It's a, a factory for future MMA fighters. And, you know, you combine that with his obvious physical gifts and he just looked like the, uh, he looked like the next big thing, even though he was only, you know, four and oh or four and one at the time. Since arriving in the UFC, He's been a work in progress, but he really has been steadily improving. His UFC debut, he blasted Jacob Malkoon in 18 seconds. Not much could be learned from that, but his win over Nasruddin Imovov, one, it's aged well because Imovov has turned out to be a very, very good fighter himself, but it also seemed to either show the ceiling on Hawes' potential or at least show the things that he needed to work on because uh, he handled Imovov for two rounds and then faded badly in the third. And uh, Imovov had him hurt 
uh, in the last minute of that fight to the point where, if, I mean, if the round were longer or there were another round after that, we might have been looking at a very different result than we did. But he came back from that and took on Kyle Dawkins, where at least at the time, Dawkins was even more highly regarded than Imovov. And Hawes was the one who was growing stronger as the fight went along. So if that's an indication that he has fixed the cardio issues, that's a good sign. It's hard to tell whether that's the case based on his results since then. He got knocked out in the first round by Chris Curtis. That's just what Curtis was doing to people last fall. And then his fight against uh, Duran Wynn in June was such a mismatch and kind of such easy sledding for him that, yeah, it went late into the second round, but it was impossible to tell really what kind of shape Hawes' gas tank was in because he was winning every minute of the fight. Uh, so I, it's, it's hard to tell if they're not if a fighter is not being pushed hard uh, what their cardio really looks like. But if the Dawkins fight is an indication that his, uh, his cardio issues are a thing of the past, he is an extremely dangerous man. He is an outstanding wrestler. He is uh, a very, very good striker. Uh, he's prone to occasional defensive lapses, but for the most part, he's a clean boxer with extremely hard kicks and tons of power and everything. And you look at him and you can tell that he has tons of power and everything. Uh, you know, he's got muscles on top of his muscles uh, and he is, a you know, he is a, a freakishly good fast twitch athlete. Turning to look at Delides, Delides is huge. He was huge at 205, which is what made it strange when he decided to drop to middleweight. You know, he was 2-0. and I mean, he was undefeated as a pro, period. He was 8-0. Uh, he was 2-0 and in the UFC and was built like a brick house and decided to drop weight out of nowhere He's been fine at 185, and to his credit, he's not the same person he was at 205, just sucked out of an additional 20 pounds of water. He really has retooled uh, his physique. He looks physically different. He he went about this the right way. Not surprising for a guy who's landed up at Extreme Couture, where not only is he with a great team, but he has easy access to the UFC PI and its uh, strength and conditioning and nutrition uh, facilities. With him, I mean, he and, and Hawes both look like bodybuilders or cartoon characters, but where Hawes really is a fast twitch athlete, Deleuze is not. He's incredibly strong, but he's not slow, but he's just, he's just average. Uh, it doesn't matter a whole lot in terms of what he wants to do because he doesn't want to really... Uh, he doesn't want to do anything that requires a ton of fast twitch athleticism anyway. He's a willing striker uh, who, at his best, he does throw in combination. He really wants to wrestle and grapple and and kill people with ground and pound. He's an extremely persistent wrestler. He doesn't have a blinding uh, traditional shot takedown from the outside like Hawes does, but he's good at punching his way inside, and then from there... He has a uh, judo type, Greco-Roman type, uh, you know, lifts, throws. Uh, he has judo style trips. Once he's on top, uh, crushingly heavy on top, mean ground and pound. 
Uh, he can threaten with submissions. He doesn't have any at the UFC level, but that's mostly because his opponents have, I mean, they've just crumbled when, when he's hit them. But looking at his lone career loss, that decision loss to uh, Trevin Giles, that's concerning against Hawes because the reason Giles beat him was that Giles was way faster. Uh, Giles uh, pieced him up on the feet from the first round on. You know, his his jab was there for him uh, all night. His right cross was there. Giles kicked him to the legs, kicked him to the body. And as the fight wore on, Giles's cardio uh, started to take over. Delize got tired f- first, and that made it impossible for Delize to stick to Giles the way he did to say, you know, Laurie Osteropoli in his next fight. Uh, by the third round, Giles was rejecting his takedown attempts with ease and kind of laughing at him. Uh, he didn't he didn't like it. That's concerning because Hawes will be faster than Delides. And Hawes, at least the version of Hawes that we think we have right now, probably isn't going to get tired first. Those are concerning uh, issues. Also, Hawes hits a lot harder than Trevin Giles does. Like, Giles has good power. Hawes has numbing power. But, you know, Giles has subsequently dropped to welterweight. That is something that Phil Hawes could maybe not do even if he cut off an arm. Because of that, I think this is a tough stylistic matchup for Roman Delides. There's always the chance that Hawes's uh, gas tank issues return, or that he create or he commits a, a big mistake that uh, you know lets Delides land a massive knee on him, like he did on Abragamov, like he did on Dawkins. But I don't think those are. I, I don't think those are the are the main chance here. Delides' favorite strategy to clinch, to stick to Hawes, to try to maul him with knees, to try to take him down. Those n- None of those are things that are going to work well against Phil Hawes. Uh, Gimme Hawes here, and nobody's finished Delides yet. I'm always hesitant to pick something to happen that I've not seen before, but I could see it happening here. Uh, Delides' preferred strategy is going to require him to spend a lot of time blundering into range against Hawes and I could see Hawes just nailing him with a, a flying knee or a haymaker or something. So give me Hawes by second round TKO here. Next up, it's a light heavyweight matchup between Dustin Jacoby and Khalil Roundtree. Jacoby, the 34-year-old Illinois native fighting out of Colorado, is 18-5-1 overall. He is 6-2-1 in the UFC. However, that's a little deceptive uh, because he went 0-2 in the UFC uh, seven years ago, was cut, went, and actually uh, had a kickboxing career. He came back to the UFC uh, through Dana White's Contender Series back in 2020, and since then, he is 6-0-1 in the octagon. Uh the lone blemish, a split draw against Iwan Kudalaba. Aside from that, it's been uh, all wins and mostly knockouts. He fought most recently back in July at UFC on ABC Ortega versus Rodriguez, where he knocked out Da Eun Jung in the first round. 
That was his fourth straight win. He will look to make it five straight and thrust himself into title contention at light heavyweight against Roundtree. The 32-year-old uh, Nevada native is 10-5 and five with one no contest overall. He is 6-5 and five with one no contest since joining the UFC out of the 23rd season of The Ultimate Fighter. He is on a two-fight winning streak, those being uh, second-round TKOs of Modestus Bukowskis last September and Carl Roberson, whom he took out with a body kick and some follow-up punches in March at UFC Fight Night Santos versus Ankalaev. Jacoby is the moderate favorite. He is minus 170, where Roundtree is plus 135. This is a matchup between two of the best strikers in the light heavyweight division in Jacoby and Roundtree. Uh, Jacoby, a fantastic kickboxer. Uh, everything you would expect from a, you know, glory title challenger. In fact, his, uh, his loss in glory was against Alex Pereira, your next middleweight title challenger. He has great footwork. Uh, has one of the best jabs in the division, has some of the best calf kicks in the division. As his return fight to the UFC, he finished Justin Ledette back on October 31st of 2020 with basically nothing but calf kicks. Uh, Ledette was a boxer, pretty good boxer, and Jacoby just kicked his lead leg until he was falling down all on his own. His uh, punches... You know, like I say, a great jab is a great right cross. He uh, is, he's one of the guys that he's advanced enough that he throws his jab to different spots and at different speeds. It really is a fantastic weapon. His liabilities, really, it's just the ground. His takedown defense is not great, but to his credit, he's very active to get back up. He uh, doesn't concede the position. Yeah. We just talked about Marco Sogerio de Lima, where he's easy to take down and the round is kind of over once you do. That is not the case with Jacoby. He is active to get back up. His split draw with Iwan Kudalaba, Kudalaba took him down probably seven or eight times, but couldn't keep him down. Uh, and Kudalaba is a good wrestler and, you know, a physical hulk of a man. Uh, great uh, defense on the feet. He's a guy that's you know, understands that his first line of defense for his chin is his feet, just not to be there when the other guy is swinging, uh, but also, you know, slips and parries really well. Uh, yeah, just again, one of the best uh, kickboxers in the UFC, one of the best strikers in uh, the light heavyweight division. He's taking a, on a guy in Roundtree that I've said this before on these previews, but a like a remarkable improvement as a fighter from the guy who was on tough 23 I was it six seven eight years ago uh you know he first came to my uh, attention as someone of interest when he plunked Gokan Saki uh back in 2018 you know uh Gokan Saki one of the most decorated kickboxers ever really to try to cross over in earnest to MMA and uh Roundtree knocked him out bad in the first round. And that wasn't even the the fully evolved Roundtree. Like right then or or soon thereafter, you know, he started training at Tiger Muay Thai and 
he was one of the first UFC fighters, if not the first, to really come back from Thailand with a noticeably improved Muay Thai game. Uh, for a lot of fighters, it had the reputation of being kind of the fighter vacation. It's very cheap to live in Thailand. It's very cheap to stay. It's a beautiful place. The weather's great. The food's great. Fighters would go there and be like, you know, I've been training at Tiger Muay Thai or Phuket top team or AKA Phuket or wherever. And they'd come back with a great tan and kind of the same striking game. Uh, that's not Roundtree. He's a much better striker than he was. It's hard to have a whole lot of faith in what he is right now, though. Like since that Anders fight that was kind of the eye-opening moment, he's two and two and he has a couple of bad losses to good fighters and a couple of good wins over bad fighters. That's pretty much the only way I can put it. Uh, <clears throat> in his last fight against Carl Roberson, you know, not to the same level as knocking out Gokan Saki, but, you know, another case of him really just plunking a more credentialed striker. You know, Carl Roberson, uh, you know, is a guy with legit kickboxing experience, legit K1 experience, and Roundtree absolutely crushed him with a body kick that Roberson was dead in the water after that. Like, it took about another 30 seconds for the fight to end, I th 20 seconds for the fight to end. But uh, one of the nastiest, nastiest body kick knockouts uh, of this year. So even though Jacoby is by far the more credentialed striker, you can't count Roundtree out. I mean, Jacoby's, uh, he had a great run in glory, but he certainly not go Kansaki from, uh, from that standpoint. But Roundtree is still inconsistent. The good news is that neither of these guys is likely to take advantage of the other's ground game because Roundtree's takedown defense is even worse than Jacoby's. And unlike Jacoby, uh, he's not very busy on the ground. He's closer to the Marcos Pizal model of, you know, if you take me down, this round might be over. We aren't going to get that. We're going to have a striker's delight here, but I do expect Jacoby to get the better of it. In spite of the fact that Jacoby is older than Roundtree and has twice as many MMA fights and a, a pretty substantial kickboxing career uh, on top of that, Roundtree feels like the older fighter. He feels like the guy that's starting to fade a little bit. Uh, you know, I'll never say never. Roundtree is probably the harder hitter in terms of single shot knockout power. That would require him to land a clean single shot, and just nobody's done that to Jacoby, especially since he's been back. Uh, his defense is just too good on the feet. Roundtree could certainly go to work trying to chop at him with leg kicks like he did Anders, but Jacoby's leg kicks are even better, and he checks leg kicks very well. There's, there's just not much in the way of plausible avenues to victory for Roundtree here. It's a bad style matchup for him, and opposite of what I'll often say about these fights, I'm actually surprised here that the line is not wider. Give me Jacoby to win this, and I'm going to say he gets a TKO. Uh, Roundtree has been hurt and finished by less, like, less nifty strikers than Jacoby over the last couple of years. I mean, Johnny Walker put him away. Uh, give me Dustin Jacoby to 
get a second round TKO here. Uh, Jacoby's sometimes a pretty deliberate starter and Roundtree can be as well. So I could see the, the first round having some single shot, you know, single strike pot shotting and doesn't really get ramped up until the last two minutes or so. But second round, all bets are off. And I, I think Jacoby hurts him bad on the feet and, you know, maybe has to swarm to finish on the ground or maybe just gets a clean uh, walk off knockout. But I, I have Jacoby big in this one. We head back to the middleweight division for a matchup between Josh Fremd and Treshawn Gore. Fremd, the 28-year-old Factory X product, is 9-3 overall. He is 0-1 since joining the UFC as a former title challenger in LFA. Uh, he debuted back in April at UFC 273, where he dropped a unanimous decision to Anthony Hernandez. He'll be facing Gore, the 28-year-old South Carolina native, is 3-2 overall. He is 0-2 since joining the UFC as the middleweight runner-up of the 29th season of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, he fought at the finale, which was UFC Fight Night Hermanson versus Strickland back in February, losing a unanimous decision to Brian Battle, then came back in July at UFC on ESPN Dos Anjos versus Fazeev against late notice opponent Cody Brundage, who knocked him out late in the first round. Incidentally, that fight back on July 9th uh, was supposed to be Fremd versus Gore. Uh, Fremd had to withdraw from that fight, instepped Brundage, got the short notice win. So we get that fight now, although a little bit of the shine is off of it, and certainly there's more pressure for Gore now. And he is the moderate underdog. Fremd is minus 180 here. Gore plus 155 or so on the comeback. Uh, Josh Fremd is an interesting prospect uh, just from a physical standpoint. Uh, kind of like I said about Joseph Holmes. And honestly, aside from color, Fremd and Holmes look kind of similar. They're both about the same height. They are, you know, they're both six foot four middleweights who are not skinny. Like they've got muscle on their frame and kind of long limbed. Uh, the difference is Fremd seems to make better use of that, uh, of that physique or makes use of it in more phases of MMA. Like he's a, he's a good offensive wrestler. Uh, you know, he's got tall man, uh, wrestling tall man takedowns rather than, you know, shooting in from the outside. Uh, you know, he has nice, you know, snatch single, uh, knee pick, things like that. <clears throat> he is an aggressive striker. Like he is a guy that likes to come forward. The good version of Josh Fremd is a high volume striker, throws lots of punches, throws in combination, they can be a little bit arm punchy, like he's not getting his full maximum power out of them. But I'd almost rather have that because the bad version of Fremd will kind of wait, 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 and try to load up on single strikes and can lose rounds while he's at it. So ideally, you'd get something in between the two. But if you, if I only have to, if I have to have one or the other, I'd rather have the the version that's really aggressive, high volume coming forward. Um, he's, a, like I said, good wrestler, also a good grappler. Um, you know, he has almost as many wins by submission as he does by, uh, by knockouts. 
And, you know, good back takes, good top control. He's taking on someone in gore that he has obvious potential, but it just feels as though he has arrived at the UFC too soon. Um, it's something that I said about Chase Hooper earlier in this program. It's something I've said about people like, you know, Mickey Gall, Sage Northcutt. Uh, Gore has a bit of that same feel because he has, I mean, he, he has physical gifts. He's physically very strong. He's fast. Uh, he has good component skills like he's a good offensive wrestler he is uh he has some weapons on the feet he's a very hard kicker he throws straight punches with lots of power but all of those physical gifts and all those individual component skills haven't really coalesced into a complete game like he's a good offensive wrestler but surprisingly easy to take down sometimes like he has lapses in defensive wrestling he throws hard straight punches he throws hard kicks but doesn't throw in combination enough and uh throws naked kicks too often and his gas tank is proving to be uh a liability like it that cost him the fight against uh brian battle for sure so he's another fighter that it just feels as though coming to the ufc as a three and oh fighter with three just low level fights was just too soon. You know, he's still just, I think 28 years old. Yeah. 28 would be best served almost by getting cut and going and having five or six fights in like 12 or 18 months and, and coming back and trying again in the UFC. I'm guessing he might have that chance because I do favor friend here. Uh, friend has, uh, three times as many pro fights despite being the same age and you can tell because while Fremd has kind of an idiosyncratic skill set uh, he has a lot more poise despite being physically bigger uh, he has a more reliable gas tank and he's just free of some of the defensive lapses that have plagued Gore so far uh, anywhere this fight goes Gore is dangerous but I just doesn't have anything that Fremd hasn't seen uh, if I had to guess, and I do have to guess, that's why you're watching this show. I would say, uh, we get a cautious first round, uh, Fremd is smart enough to be cognizant of Gore's power and Gore's, uh, typically fast starts. Gore's probably going to uh, have some pretty good success early on with, uh, with hard leg kicks. He might land, uh, you know some some pretty hard punches but uh i think friend is going to be able to take this to the ground if he wants and if he does uh he's going to have the advantage there he's uh he's bigger than gore he's a good top position grappler and again gore is going to be the one getting tired faster so if this goes to the second round that only favors friend if it goes to the third even more so give me friend by uh I'm going to say decision here, but a late stoppage wouldn't surprise me either. Next up at UFC Vegas 63 is a heavyweight matchup between Waldo Cortez Acosta and Jared Vandera. 
Cortez Acosta, the 31-year-old Panamanian by way of Arizona, is a perfect 7-0 as a mixed martial artist. This will be his UFC debut. He won on Dana White's Contender Series back in August, knocking out Danilo Suzart in the first round. He will be taking on Vandera. The 30-year-old Californian is 12-9 overall. He is 1-5 in the UFC since joining out of the 2020 season of the Contender Series. He is on a four-fight losing streak. Uh, since winning a unanimous decision over Justin Taffa last May, he has lost to Alexander Romanov, Andrei Arlovsky, Alexei Olenek, and Chase Sherman. The most recent of those, the Sherman loss, was at uh, UFC on ESPN, Dos Anjos versus Faziv back in July and was a third round TKO where he kind of collapsed under a swarm of punches from Sherman. Uh, he'll try not to make it five in a row. If he isn't fighting for his job here, I don't know what's going on, but uh, he is not favored to get it done. He is plus 175. Cortez Acosta, minus 220, so a greater than 2-1 to one favorite as the debuting fighter. Uh, start with Cortez Acosta. For a guy who's only 7-0 as a pro, he actually has a better resume than some debuting heavyweights. I mean, 7-0, but he's, he has a couple decent wins. Uh, you know, he beat Muhammad Darius last year in Bellator. He beat, I mean, the guy he beat on the Contender Series, Danilo Suzart, not that bad a fighter. Honestly, I mean, he's probably beaten a couple guys that are better than Jared Vandera already. You know, in terms of skills, I mean, I don't know if being huge is a skill. I, I guess it kind of is since I'm about to give my my usual uh, spiel on Vandera. But uh, Cortez Acosta is huge. He's 6'4", 6'5", uh, you know, scrapes the heavyweight limit like he weighs in around 258 260 most of the time he actually has decent boxing uh i always like a heavyweight that bothers to throw the jab he he definitely does uh you know good jab he needs to check leg kicks uh you know therese hurt him with leg kicks a couple of other fighters even ones that were clearly inferior to him, kind of stymied him with, with some some leg kicks. He has decent takedown defense, but it's just power takedown defense. Uh, you know, he just, he's so big and so strong that he can just get an underhook. And I mean, he did that to, to Darius and basically just pancaked him, just flipped him over and ended up in top position. He's a work in progress. I mean, 31 at heavyweight, he literally has another five years to go until his prime. He could fight at this level for another 10. So he's got time to work. And in Vandera, I mean, frankly, he has a good opponent to start that process with. Vandera, I feel bad saying this, like, because he seems like an absolute delight as a, a human being. He's a fun interview. But... You know, he, he might be the lowest level heavyweight in the UFC right now, just based on outcomes, you know, because if you name who you would think some of the other worst heavyweights in the UFC are, he's lost to them. Like Chase Sherman was probably it. You know, Chase Sherman, I think, was like 
three and nine in the UFC or something before he fought Vandera and beat him. Now Vandera is one and five in the UFC. Uh, like I alluded to before, he is huge. If you look across the UFC heavyweight division, seeing all these guys, oh, 6'4", 265, 6'4", 265, they can all sort of start to run together. Vandera is bigger than those guys. He, he's got that uh, Ben Rothwell thing where he's just got, you know, he's frame is the size of a house. And there's a difference between a guy that fights at one at 265 and weighs 265 versus a guy that fights at 265 and has to cut 15 pounds to get there. I suspect that Vandera is in the latter category. And for a guy that big, uh, he's surprisingly nimble. Again, kind of like uh, Rothwell. You know, nobody's going to confuse him for surreal gone or anything, but you know, he's not a complete stumble bum. You know, he, you know, his, his footwork is decent. He's another guy that he's, he's not a bad boxer. He also is willing to throw a jab. Uh, he has decent power. Any guy that's six, four and two sixty five should be able to knock you out. If he lands cleanly, he has that kind of power, but not plus power by heavyweight standards. The real problem with Jared Vandera, because you know, you look at him, he's only 30 years old. He is absolutely huge. And like I say, he's not unathletic. So why is he one in five in the UFC? Part of it is that he's fought some good people. Sergey Spivak is a top 15 fighter. Alexander Romanov is a top 10 fighter, you know, creeping up on the top five. But really, in this four-fight losing streak, he is susceptible to everything. He has a, a number of offensive tools, but defensively, he is susceptible to whatever his opponent wants to do. Uh, Chase Sherman, you know, again, Chase Sherman, like I don't, not even a borderline UFC talent. Like he's, he's a sub UFC talent who happened to beat Vandera in his last fight, but at his best, Sherman is a low power, high volume, uh, striker at heavyweight against Vandera. He was high volume and landed cleanly enough that he ended up finishing him in the third round. That's not a good, you know, that's not a good sign. Is lost to Alexi Olenek. Yeah, he got tapped out with a, a scarf hold, and Alexi Olenek is one of the greatest uh, submission artists in heavyweight MMA history, in, in MMA history period. The more disturbing thing is that Olenek was 44 years old. He was 30 pounds lighter than Vandera, and Vandera couldn't get him off him. Like Alexi Olenek managed to out wrestle Vandera with like Iminari rolls and guard pulls, and Vandera just didn't have the wherewithal to shove this much smaller older man off and get back to punching him. And so, yeah, Olenek uh, ran complete game on him on the ground, and that was really discouraging to see. Uh, then Arlovsky. We know how Andrei Arlovsky wins fights in the 2020s. It is normally by fighting an ultra-cautious game plan and kind of snake-charming and lulling his opponent into just staring at him for 15 minutes. You know, there's a reason that Andrei Arlovsky's uh, wins now are all by split decision. Just He slows down the fight to such a crawl that uh, it's hard for judges to score. It's hard for me to score, except against Jared Vandera. Against Vandera, like Arlovsky, whose game is now completely built around guarding his chin, was throwing like spinning back fists at him. 
that's how little respect he had for what Bandera had coming the other way. So just with each new opponent comes a new way for uh, Jared Bandera to lose. And again, I feel I don't it gives me no joy to say these things. Uh, but here, I just if you want to predict this fight, what does uh, Cortez Acosta do well? Uh, he's a good boxer with uh, good natural power without overthrowing anything. Vandera could try to take him down, but uh, unless he gets a good entry, I think Acosta is just going to get underhooks and shuck him off like a oversized, you know, dad bod crow cop. I expect Acosta is going to piece him up, and I don't think it's going to take him three rounds like it did Chase Sherman. Uh, Acosta hits a lot harder than Sherman and uh, is more aggressive. Give me Waldo Cortez Acosta by first round TKO here. I think he's just going to start finding Vandera's face with that jab uh, early and often. And then if the the right hook and right cross start coming, things are going to start going downhill pretty quickly. Next up at UFC Fight Night 213, and at least as the card is currently constituted, the co-main event is a welterweight matchup featuring Tim Means versus Max Griffin. Means, the 38-year-old Albuquerque native, is 32-13-1 with one no contest overall. He is 14-10 with one no contest in the UFC, although like uh, two other fighters on this card... He has two separate stints with the promotion. Uh, he got dropped by the UFC after a two and two start. Came back and he is 12 and eight with one no contest since coming back. He did lose his last time out. Uh, got choked out in the second round by Kevin Holland at uh, UFC on ESPN Cater versus Emmett. That would be UFC Austin back in June. Prior to that, he had won three straight over Laureano Staropoli, Mike Perry, and Nicholas Dalby. So he'll try to get back to winning ways here against Griffin. The 36-year-old Californian is 18-9 overall. He is 6-7 in the UFC. Uh, he also lost his last time out. It was a split decision against Neil Magny at UFC on ESPN Blades vs. Dawkus back in March. Prior to that, he also had won three in a row. His three wins over Ramiz Brahimai, Keenan Song, and Carlos Condit. Odds here do favor the Californian. He is minus 190, means plus 150 as the underdog. Interesting thing about uh, Tim Means, for as much as I just talked about Andre Arlovsky and how he's having this bizarre longevity uh, well into his 40s, it's almost more impressive to me that Tim Means is 38 and you can make a good argument that he's fighting as well now as he ever has. It's not even that he's finding ways to just scrabble, uh, you know, his way to wins and, and stay in the division. He's again, before he lost to Kevin Holland, who's a top 10 fighter, he was on a three fight win streak. And while Laureano Staropoli and Mike Perry are both out of the UFC, he beat Nicholas Dalby uncontroversially, and that's one of the best wins of his career. At age, I think he was 37 at the time, 38 now. So it's great. It's a good story. 
you know, the more you know about Tim Means, the more happy you are that he's uh, doing this well, both in and out of the cage. But if there were ever anyone who was going to, it's probably him. Just he's always been tough as nails, and his game, even in his prime, never really ran on uh, top shelf athleticism. So it, it almost makes sense that he'd still be uh, exceedingly tough out at this point in his career. Uh, Griffin is another matter entirely. Like you, your ears may have perked up if you're not that familiar with Griffin that I said he's six and seven in the UFC. And again, that's after being three and one in his last four fights. I mean, he opened his UFC run. Uh, at one point, I think he was, uh, three and five in the UFC. There are several times where he could have been cut. You know, he had a couple of two fight losing, uh, streaks where, a third, this is before the COVID era, you know, might well have uh, meant him getting cut. But he is uh, sort of turning a corner. Again, 36 years old, but uh, he was always a skilled fighter. And he's just, he's gotten, I don't want to say better, because it's the same skill set and it's the same athletic uh, prowess he just had, you know, kind of bad luck and bad outcomes early on. And he's gotten better at kind of making his own luck. And part of that might be a change in level of competition. You know, he won three straight against Ramiz Brahimai, Kinan Song, and a very, very faded Carlos Condit. That's not, you know, that's just not like back when he was taking on Colby Covington and Eliseo Capoeira. But, you know, however you slice it, he's still in the UFC and he's generally speaking on the upswing. He's got the same skills as ever. Uh, he's a good boxer. He has a nice jab. He has a good straight right with, uh, you know, good power on it. He has good leg kicks. He is uh, he's a good wrestler. He doesn't generally prefer to wrestle. That's kind of his... Uh, his second alternative, but you know, when he decides to, he has good entries, uh, good at finishing takedowns, his cardio. I thought of it as a question mark five years ago. It's looked good recently. Like he lost to Neil Magny his last time out, but cardio wasn't the reason he lost that fight. And even if cardio were the deciding factor, Neil Magny has some of the best cardio in the sport. So there wouldn't be any shame there. Uh, means the scouting report on means has been the same forever. I mean, the scouting report on means was the same during his first stint in the UFC a decade ago. Uh, he's a very tall and lanky welterweight. He was extremely tall and lanky by 2011 standards. He still is even by, by modern standards. He is a counter striker by preference. And, you know, Keith loves to point him out as the ultimate example of the tall fighter who fights short. And he doesn't mean that in a negative way, but a lot of tall fighters, you know, your typical tall fighter will use kicks and jabs and try to keep everything in out fight and just keep things where they can hit their opponent and their opponent can't hit them. Means is the type of fighter that uses that length to kind of get leverage and bully people in the clinch, uses his height 
to throw effective knees in in the clinch, uh, get takedowns there. Uh, that that's means he's still very strong in the clinch. Uh, on the feet at distance, where most fighters lean on the jab as the range finder, he 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 will throw a jab, but his teep up the middle is kind of his preferred means of finding the range, establishing the range, stopping his uh, opponent's forward momentum. Uh, you know, he'll throw the teep up the middle, and then the next time he won't throw it, and instead he'll look to counter with punches. I'm surprised that Griffin is a favorite here and almost a two-to-one favorite. I, I don't know what to attribute that to because, again, they both lost their last time out. They both won three before that, and frankly, Means has done the same thing against just a slightly higher level of competition i think and the things like means lost to kevin holland for two reasons the main reason is that holland had even greater reach than him like holland is one of the few fighters in that division who's taller and has longer reach than means and unlike means holland's fights long uh and had a huge speed advantage so holland busted him up in the first round uh you know his Jab was in Means's face. Uh, hurt him with, I think. Uh, I think he hurt him with a right, uh, right cross late in the first round. Means was still kind of compromised in the second. Holland hurt him some more, and then locked up uh, a Darce choke to, to finish it off. Those are all things that that Griffin isn't really going to be capable of doing. Like Griffin probably will have a speed advantage over Means, but Means is going to. Like Griffin's not gonna, he doesn't have the reach of Holland. I don't think he has the speed of Holland. And while he might have as much power as Holland on just a one shot for one shot basis, part of the problem there was that Holland's reach and accuracy were just maximizing his power because he was tagging means so cleanly and so effortlessly. And then, you know, getting the the finishing Bravo choke on means like he did that that's something that's not really in, in Griffin's wheelhouse either. If anything, Griffin's loss to Magny reflected more things that Means could do to Griffin. Like, Means and Magny are not, they're not extremely similar, but they have some similarities in broad strokes. They're both, you know, tall, lanky welterweights who fight well inside. Like, Magny is happy to use his his height and his reach as an in-and-out fighter. So he has, you know, a little bit broader set of skills there than Means does. But the things that, Magny likes to do in the clinch with his height are very reminiscent of memes. Uh, and then his surprising physical strength for a guy who looks skinny, again, uh, reminiscent of means. So in in their, you know, in both of their last outings, their, their losses, I see more things that point to a win for means here than for Griffin. Uh, I don't know if this line is just an indication that uh, betters and the bookkeepers that have to respond to you know to their bets think that means is fading and about to go off a cliff but i'm not going to believe that until i see it i think we are eight fights into a nine fight card right now without me picking a single underdog but this one for me is is pretty easy and i don't feel like i'm taking a flyer here uh give me tim means to win a pretty easy decision uh i i think means is gonna have the tactical advantage from the get-go 
and I think he's probably going to be the guy growing stronger as the fight goes along. So, yeah, Tim Means by decision. That brings us to the main event of UFC Fight Night 213, a bantamweight matchup between Calvin Cater and Arnold Allen. Cater, the 34-year-old Boston native, is 23-6 and overall. He is 7-4 and in the UFC. He did lose his last time out. Uh, he dropped a split decision to Josh Emmett in the headliner of UFC on ESPN 37 in Austin. That was back in June. Uh, controversial split decision. Uh, most observers seemed to score that one for Cater, but no robbery, but certainly a razor close, uh, razor close fight. Prior to that, he took a unanimous decision over Giga Chikadze in the headliner of UFC on ESPN 32 back in January. That was not razor close. Uh, he dominated Chikadze in a way that really nobody at the UFC level had done up until that point. Prior to that, uh, it had been almost exactly a year since his uh, previous appearance, which was the first UFC on ABC card back in January of 2021, where he took a beatdown of the year candidate from Max Holloway. He will try to get back into the win column against Allen. The 28-year-old Englishman is 18-1 overall. He is on an 11-fight winning streak, the last nine of those in the UFC. Uh, he worked his way up the, the ranks pretty gradually uh, by the standards of a UFC prospect, but in his last couple of fights has graduated to fighting borderline contenders and then flat-out contenders as he took a unanimous decision over Sadiq Youssef back in April and then came back and knocked out Dan Hooker in the first round at UFC London in March. Uh, he will look to make it 10 in a row to open his UFC career and mint himself a title contender for real against Cater. And uh, this fight is pretty much a pick em on the odds. Cater, just the slightest of favorites. He's around minus 120 at most outlets. Allen around minus 110. But neither man is available at plus money, so it really is a, a pick em. This is a great matchup, obviously, and it's the matchup that essentially this entire card is riding on, as it's the only fight on the card with any immediate implications for its division. But it's also an indicator of how the UFC matchmakers saw the Emmett fight. Because, as I said, uh, Cater lost to Emmett. It was a close fight. Most of us, I, I certainly, I scored it for uh, for Cater. But the UFC did not give him any kind of step back as, you know, Arnold is, has all the looks of a future uh, title contender himself. Cater, uh, the book is out on on this guy. He is one of the very best boxers in the division and has the complete skill set there. You know, he has an incredible jab. Something I said earlier about Dustin Jacoby, Cater uh, is one of those guys who really has a mastery of the jab. He'll, you know, throw it to different locations. He uh, definitely throws it different speeds and just uh, makes fantastic use of it as you know, not just a range finder, but, uh, you know, a weapon in itself. 
he throws in combination. When fighters try to crowd him, he will nail them with his right cross, uh, right uppercut, right hook. Uh, you know, has underrated power. People don't think of Calvin Cater as a knockout artist. And, you know, despite the Boston finisher nickname, he's not a one-shot knockout artist for sure. But he is a guy with obvious stinging power. Most of his opponents, when they face him, uh, look like they've been through a box grader at the end. Uh, Josh Emmett, certainly, like he left Josh Emmett extremely marked up. Giga Chikadze had never looked like that after any of his fights. Uh, even the Holloway fight, the Max Holloway fight almost two years ago that we think of as one of the most lopsided beatings of 2021. And we remember for the Holloway, like no look, you know, slip and punch and talking to his son and jawing at the UFC table. It's it's important to remember that Holloway uh, took and like absorbed a near record number of strikes in that fight too. Like, like Holloway was clearly you know outclassed uh, Cater that night, but it was not a one sided shellacking. Like Cater landed like 160 punches that fight or something. Uh, so a fantastic boxer, a surprisingly good offensive wrestler. Uh, the threat of the takedown helped him in the Chikaze fight for sure. It, uh, you know, he did it just enough to keep Chikaze off balance, which allowed uh, his boxing to really run, uh, run free. His own takedown defense is only okay, but he is very active at getting back up, and you know is good at it. That's an interesting skill set to pit against Allen, who himself is an outstanding boxer. Uh, a little bit of a different boxer, like uh, really good lateral movement where, you know, Cater is, I mean, Cater has good lateral movement, but really wants to bring uh, his opponent on and and bring him onto his counter punches. Uh, Allen has great lateral movements. He will change pace from his boxing with kicks and with takedowns. He is an outstanding wrestler, uh, you know, very, very good uh, takedowns. And contrary to the you know stereotype of, of the British fighter, he has like an American college wrestler style, uh, you know, single or double leg shot from the outside. And he has the cardio to make it work for, well, at least three rounds. We know that much because uh, against Sadiq Yusuf, his cardio helped make the difference in that fight. Uh, he was the one coming on strong late in what was otherwise a, a very close fight. Here, it's a fantastic style matchup because it's a matchup between two of the better boxers in the division, but the real difference maker, what this is going to hinge on, I think, is whether Allen will embrace his takedown game early, whether he'll, he'll have success with it, and you know if he does if he does have success taking down Cater early, then that means great things for Allen. That's uh, that's going to set off uh, his own boxing. It's going to keep Cater more hesitant. But if he doesn't have success taking Cater down early, or if he doesn't try, uh, I'm interested to see whether you know he goes to it later, or if he keeps trying. You know if uh, Cater rebuffs his early takedown attempts. I think Cater is 
kind of underrated and overlooked for how good he is. His UFC record is seven and four. Like I say, you know, in my opinion, it should probably be eight and three. But even that doesn't really like it doesn't really speak to to how good he is. He, you know, he, he had an early loss to Hanato Moicano, who ended up being a top five fighter and, you know, briefly in the title picture. He had a close loss to Zabit Magomed Sharipov, where if they'd rematched even a year later, I think it might have gone differently because what that really boiled down to was Cater giving away the first round, you know, where he didn't necessarily need to. And he came back furiously in the end, but, you know, just it just wasn't enough. Holloway, yeah, Holloway, a better fighter and uh, a bad style matchup for him. And then Emmett, where, you know, I thought Cater won. He is an absolutely fantastic fighter. This is a rough, uh, I think this is a rough ask for him, though. It's a shame that, uh, well, it's not a shame. Like, I'm not going to call it a shame that, like, Emmett got the split decision because it means that Emmett, who is older than both of these guys, is probably going to get his title shot, you know, in time. But it, it is a shame because it, you know, put Cater, it gave Cater a step back in line and another tough style matchup in Allen. But I'm slightly leaning Allen here. I don't feel super comfortable with it because Cater excels in five round fights. He is a guy that tends to come on strong as the fight goes on. And Allen, at least at the UFC level, has not been in a five-round fight yet. But I do think Allen's offensive wrestling against Cater's defensive wrestling is going to be the difference maker. In much the same way that Cater's wrestling was the difference uh, for him against Chikadze, and I'm one of the guys that incorrectly picked Chikadze over Cater and realized I was wrong pretty quickly, I I think Allen is going to do a similar thing to, to cater here. Uh, it's going to be fantastic boxing while we get it, but Allen being able to kind of change pace with well-timed leg kicks and with uh, either just primary takedowns where he decides he's going to shoot or reactive takedowns where he catches cater rushing forward and changes levels, I think is going to be the difference. It's going to keep cater from getting into that building from round to round rolling downhill type uh you know, rhythm he, you know, he has at his best, the the kind of thing he did to Danny Gay, where he outstruck him, but he outstruck him worse each round as it went along. Uh, Chikadze, where he busted up Chikadze and it just got worse as the fight got along, went along. I don't think he'll be able to get in gear like that against Allen. I think Allen's takedowns are probably going to, uh, are probably going to, to disrupt him too badly. If we get into the fourth and fifth round, and Allen is tired, either just tired because he turns out he doesn't have five rounds worth of gas or because the wrestling cost him more than it cost Cater. All bets are off. But I think by that point, even if Allen can just hold on, he might have enough rounds socked away to win this thing. So give me Allen by decision here. I'm not super confident in this pick. Uh, the only thing I'm confident in is that we're probably going to have a fantastic fight. There you have it. The short-staffed and very truncated Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC Fight Night 213, 
Cater versus Allen. I've been your host and only panelist, Ben Duffy. If this is your first time watching one of our previews, first of all, I apologize. They are normally quite a bit longer and much more lively than this, as my usual co-host Keith Schillen is both the better X's and O's man than me and uh, you know my partner in comedy and old school flashbacks. But nonetheless, certainly hope you enjoyed this. Uh, please do like, subscribe, leave a comment. I, you know, I'm definitely good about responding to those comments. I'd love to hear your takes on these fights, whether you think I've got it right or you think I'm off my rocker. I'd love to hear it. But most importantly, join us on the recap. Keith should be here for that, and uh, he takes the captain's chair for those. We will recap all these fights, whether it be nine or eight or they find a couple more and it's 11 again. Uh, we'll recap all these fights from the top down. We'll talk about what was good, what was bad, what was surprising, what was controversial. There's always something. And what is next for a lot of these fighters, both winners as well as losers. And most importantly, the live chat is wide open. So we will be taking your questions, your comments, and your hot takes about all of these fights and yeah, anything else you want to talk about. Between now and then, thank you once again for listening, enjoy the rest of your week, and by all means, enjoy the fights.